Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 920, air date March 28th, 2021. Congratulations, finally. Well, we'll see how it goes, we'll see. Yeah, and Vegas will be open, the Vegas one will be open a couple of weeks after? Hopefully. Ah, there's all kinds of, all kinds of um, uh, uncertainty on the horizon. There's also, like, I don't know we're not going to talk about this today, but the in November, I think, of last year, Senator Schumer, with, with a lot of uh, tension, um, shepherded through the Congress to Save Our Stages program, which was supposed to bail out um, small and larger stage uh, you know, venues uh, financially. And um, it's in November, December, January, February, March. We're, we're five months into it. We still don't have the program. We don't have a dollar of the money. Uh, businesses are still going left and right. It's crazy. Like they, they, they get a lot of attention. Yeah. And then there's zero, like it was urgent. He says, we need this right away. You can, you can see Schumer online. We need this right away. Businesses are going broke. Businesses are going belly up. And he was right. And as soon as it was passed, crickets, no wow. follow-up. I mean, zero follow-up whatsoever. You can't even apply for this program online. Um, and hey guys, I'm doing a live here the, um, with the guys from Comedy Cellar. We're going to talk about invention of email yeah, that, and why uh, you know um, technology is really not the solution we'll to everything. Soon, and, so that's what we're going to talk about. So let me bring um, these guys in. Here we go. Uh, and we have from HBO Crashing and finalist at America Got Talent and newly author Mr. Dan Natterman. Welcome to the show again. He's regular here, obviously. And our guest of honor uh, is Dr. Shiva Ayadori. He holds four degrees from MIT, and he is one of the top system scientists in the world. Uh, he, he also uh, was nominated for the U.S. National Medal of Technology and Innovation. But you probably know him best uh, as the inventor of email. Welcome to the show. Great to have you. How are you guys? Good, great, great, good. great, good to have you. And I'm fed up with email. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> well, that's what most people say when I tell them I created, I, I, I wrote this essay for the 125th issue of the Wall Street Journal. And most people, when I tell them, they said they want to kill you, right? And, you know, I think part of the discussion we want to have here. Uh, we you lost know, you. Oops. Yeah, we lost you. Can you guys hear me or no? Well, yeah, yeah I hear her with 100, 125th. No, no, the, about several years ago, the New York, uh, the Wall Street Journal had me write you know, they had the 125th anniversary issue and they had different people write about different topics and they asked me to write about the invention of email. And I said, whenever I bring up the invention of email, people always say they want to kill you for it, right? Because you have to wonder sometimes, which I hope we talk about, you know, is technology always the right solution? Sometimes, you know, being a Luddite and paper may be better. Right. And we talk about voting, you know, it's voting systems, it may be better to go back to paper. The electronic right. stuff centralizes way too much power. So, is there any earthly reason that that electronic mail isn't an un, uh, unambiguous positive thing? Well, um, if you think about it, what it's done is uh, done is well. He, he, the the reality was there was a time when when you were in the inner office mail environment, right? You had people who would do all the writing, and you could go do other things. I mean, when I was in that medical school in Newark, the secretaries. I mean, it's it, were, were the ones who the doctor would go to, they would dictate the letter, right? And the secretary's job was to do this writing. Today, we've all become quote unquote secretaries in some sense, right? 
we all have to do the sorting management of email. It doesn't mean we all know how to do it well, because it, it's a skill to write. The positive thing is everyone's writing. You could argue that we're all being forced to write. God knows what we're writing. But, um, you know, email is very, very different than text messaging. It's much more formal, right? It's, uh, it's a formal mode of communication. It's business writing. It's different than just sort of texting, you know, one-liners. But so, I think, yeah. So if, I, if, I ask, uh, if you can take us quickly, like how the story of how did you invent the email? And the, my other question is like, we're talking about this before the show, is like how everything is like so different online. So I want to know, like even... Wait, Hunter, before that, can I can, can we just, I just want to talk about what he's talking about because I, I just want to say, I, I find it interesting. So just to say, it really depends on what aspect of your life you're looking at to decide whether this is an enhancement. So from my business point of view, obviously email is is tremendously helpful. I mean, things that the turnaround time on things, and I don't just mean for the advantage of the turnaround time, for the business advantage, but just for the stress and the, the inconvenience of having to wait three days for something, you know, it's like, it's just really nice to be able to, to handle things. From the personal side, the entire digital thing, the idea that I used to be able to just go out, and I'm, I'm putting it, bundling it all together now. I used to be able to go out and say, you know, and, and I was out. Like, where were you? I was out. What do you want from me? You know, I was trying to get you. I was out. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so far now. Like, what, what did you want me to do? I was out. I mean, you couldn't get me. I, I could be, you could be, you know, incommunicado for the whole day. And nobody even questioned it. Your wife didn't question well, it. Nobody questioned it. Well, let's, let's talk about this. Ahead, sorry. No, I'm so I think the thing that we need Are to understand friends? is, um, you know, I, I did an interesting research analysis on this. So if you look at, so let me just give you sort of the history of this. There, in, in my analysis, there's three types of communications humans participate in. And it goes back to ancient times, all the way to cave, since we're cavemen or women, whatever. One type of communication is what I call the short message, right? Short informal communications, like a smoke signal, you know, the sticky note, right? Small text messages, very different flavor of communication, informal, right? The second type of communication is what I call the community messaging. So in ancient times or in caveman times, they literally have these. It was, you know, sorry, the, we, we lost you at the second one. Can you repeat the second one? The second, second is one. community messaging. Okay. Community, community messaging is where you know how you have like Facebook, right? Where you post something and everyone sort of sees what you're saying and they interact with it. Well, in caveman times, we used to have what's called, uh, you know, handbook in a sense, okay? People used to literally take their hand and they would do these pictures on after, you know, they went and hunted, right? They would tell their story with dyes, right? On the hand. So basically you painted something on the wall and then everyone would comment on it in some sense, right? You would tell your story. That became, you could talk about the bulletin board. And that eventually became what we call Facebook discussion forums. Now, email is a third form, what I call formal messaging. Formal messaging goes back to when we did business, commerce. Writing really came from, you know, you wanted to keep tally of things, right? I bought this, you bought this. That's when formal writing came. That eventually, you know, on stone tablets, then they became the letter on papyrus. And that became the email formal letter. So when you look at the inner office mail system, when I was 14 years old, Anyone over the age of 40 remembers, you know, I was uh, seven when I came to the United States, very ambitious kid. Frozen again, sorry, doctor. Oh, that's weird. 
Well, you, you got you froze. Anybody over froze the age after, anybody yeah, after. So a- anyone over the age of 40 will remember that, you know, I grew up in Jersey and I, when I was 14, I was one of those kids who was very uh, motivated. Um, and so I started going to NYU in a computer science program when I was 14. And that summer after that, I started working full time in what is now known as Rutgers Medical School in the heart of Newark, New Jersey. And as a full-time research fellow, I was finishing up high school and I was given a very interesting task, two tasks. One was my interest in medicine where I was applying computers to understand why babies were dying in their sleep. That was a medical piece. But because I could program, I was given another challenge. Um, In those medical schools or organizations, there used to be the way that people communicated through the physical letter called the inner office mail system. You guys may remember this. In this medical school, every office had a secretary, always a woman typically. The doctor would dictate to her and she had on her desk the inbox, the outbox, the drafts folder. Behind her, she had these big steel, you know, uh, things called folders. Underneath her desk was a trash can. She had paper clips. She would write this thing called a memo. And a memo was very interestingly structured to, from, subject. So let's say I was going to hire Hatam, right? And Dan, you were the, let's say the HR person and Noam, you were my boss. I would write you a memo to Gnome, you know, I would CC HR Dan and say, I would attach Atom's resume to it. And if I had to CC other people, I'd, I'd be writing away, you know, with the carbon paper multiple times. And then that inner office memo with that attachment uh, would get put into the outbox. A guy would come pick it up. And sometimes it got put into these pneumatic tubes that got sent around the whole office. And this was the way that you collaborated to decide whether you were going to hire someone. That was called the inner office mail system. And to your point, it was a very formal system. And I was asked as a 14-year-old to convert that entire system into the electronic form. No one ever had done it. The nerds in the military thought it was impossible because they didn't think secretaries could ever use a computer. There was some sexism there, obviously, (laughs) because the guys who used computers in, in the 1970s were old white guys with lab coats, okay? So, but I didn't think it was impossible. So I ended up writing 50,000 lines of code to capture every one of those features, inbox, outbox, folders. It froze again, doctor. Yeah, to capture every one of those features. Can you see me? Sorry about that. Yeah. You know, inbox, outbox, says the internet connections. Hold on, let me make sure everything's okay here. Nothing's on, right, Michelle? Oh, you are, they gotta give you good internet. Yeah, well, (laughs) um, so we converted all those features into the electronic form. Um, because these secretaries were not going to move from the paper to the electronic version. It had, had all these very, very important features. And I named that system email because in those days, the the operating system only allowed five characters. It was not an obvious term. And then when I came to MIT, it was on the front page. You know, they featured uh, three kids. And I was a very humble kid. Uh, you know, I didn't think much of it. But I went to the president's uh, house that year in 1981 And the president of MIT said, Shiva, you know, it's too bad the Supreme Court doesn't recognize software patents. People didn't know what the hell software was. They didn't even have that Supreme Court wasn't recognizing patents. So he said, you should copyright it like music or, you know, a song. Right. In 1980, the the Copyright Act was amended so you could also protect software inventions. That's what I did. So on August 30th, 1982, I was a teenager. I had to write for it. I didn't have lawyers. Uh, I was given the first U.S. copyright for email, recognizing me as the inventor of email. But what was email? Email, literally, to your point, Noam, it took the desktop, right, which was a physical desktop, 
into the ether, right? Into the electronic world, which means you carried around it everywhere. That's why people come up to you and say, how come you're not working? I'm, because everyone thinks you have your desktop with you, right? You got your inbox, your folders, everything. So that's the unfortunate thing because we literally all became working full time all the time, 24 can by I, seven. Can I ask you some questions about it to bring out um, some facts that I think uh, kids, uh, I, don't, I don't know if Hatem understands this. So, so this is, so you invented this in the late seventies, correct? 78, 1978. So, okay. So I was actually into computers in the, in the late seventies and this was, um, first it was CPM yep. and it was DOS. Uh, this, well, CPM and DOS didn't come out until the eighties. No, or, no, no. CPM was in the seventies. Well, CPM was in the seventies, but DOS didn't come out in the eighties. And, yeah. and, 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 and DOS was like Microsoft DOS. So anyway, so, cause then, I mean, I remember all this. I remember doing my first, I did my sophomore final projects for English on using a program called electric pencil. Do you remember electric pencil? Yep, I remember well. And then WordStar, if you remember that. Yeah. And, and then WordStar. Yeah. Right. I used WordStar after that, but this is electric pencil. And our first, our first, um, a gra uh, uh, a letter quality printer was a device which fit over the top of an IBM selectric typewriter. And just punch, you know, just essentially type the keys mechanically. Yep. So, that's how, so when you describe an email system there, and people say, well, secretaries couldn't use it. People think, well, oh, how come a secretary couldn't press compose and send? They don't realize this was all probably typed in, you know, in lines of type in a, in a very, very um, archaic interface that required a precise syntax and was very easy to get wrong. It was, it was a real learning curve, correct? Yeah. So what people don't understand is, you know, so to your point, you know, 1978, when I went to NYU, the, a machine would fit the size of all of our rooms, right? Like 10 bedrooms, right? M mainframes, you did programming on cards, these punch cards. Fortran was a real language that was used and it was really for uh, mathematics and science. Now in that medical school, a guy who's still there, Dr. Michelson, he was my mentor. He's the head of high performance computing. Michelson was the first guy to bring these mini computers and the screens were about this big and you could do about, I think, 40 characters across. You could write it on there. So you have to understand a secretary going from this printed paper onto this little screen was quite a huge thing. So you have to you have to fit all of these features onto this electronic medium. I mean, you didn't have all this kind of screen real estate. So I had to capture the inbox, the outbox, the folders. You had to be able to do registered mail and CC and BCC. It was quite a incredible feat, and I had to do it in 8K of memory, okay? 8K of memory, you're talking about 8K of RAM. Today we have gigabytes of RAM. So I had to write the memory swapping yes. systems. I mean, it was, it was a, looking back, I just went, and, I used to stay awake until two in the morning, you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. But this one's on those old, early mini computers when they were just starting to come. So you had to write the user interface, you had to write the code, it had to be fast. Uh, I had to write the manuals. It was, it was a one-man operation, but I, uh, Dr. Michelson recalls, you know, there was one day we had this big seminar, and he said, you know, the the guy who gave the seminar wasn't an eminent scientist, wasn't a no, it was a 14-year-old kid, you know, a room full of 100 people. But that's how early it was. And the thing was, this was done, number one, we didn't do this at MIT. It wasn't done by the military. It was done at a small medical school. And you have to understand that environment. We weren't there trying to protect our stuff like Steve Jobs and hiding it completely open. IBM came, saw our stuff. HP came and saw our stuff. So it was an environment of complete openness. It was just the excitement of being able to see if we could even do this. 
you know, so, 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 so Doc, Doc Shiver, let me ask you now, now, like we were discussing this before the show, how everything like online, everybody can, you know, just uh, dispute claims and stuff like that. You have, you know, the only thing that was available, which you said is copyright at that time and you copyrighted. So why are people still trying to dispute this? Uh, I mean, and you said you weren't, you weren't um, holding it back from anybody and you're happy. You were 14 years old. So the timeline, everything goes in the right direction. Why people are still disputing this? Well, let, let, it, it, so you're asking probably one of the most important questions. So a friend of mine who used to own Business Insider, uh, what's the name, Kevin Ryan, when he heard about all this, Kevin said, you know, Shiva, the most powerful story about the invention of email, it's clear you invented it. I wrote all the code, I have every feature, named it email, and have the first copyright. So why is there even a controversy? And herein, I think we're gonna discover something very important that's true to every human being. So here's the reality, right? First of all, where was email created? It wasn't done at MIT. It was done, wasn't done at Harvard. It wasn't done out by a dropout from Harvard, Bill Gates or Zuckerberg. It was done by a kid in Newark, New Jersey, who was a working class kid. And it was done outside of the realm of the military industrial academic complex before I came to MIT. The other thing is I, I wasn't like Bill Gates. My parents weren't Bill Gates' parents who were lawyers, right? Who had money to promote it. Um, and when I created it, First, you have to understand the history. We created it in 78, everyone saw it, HP came in. And when I put it into the, uh, when I filed the copyright in those days, it wasn't just putting a little C with a circle, right? You had to actually send in all your code. I had to go back and forth. It was a very important exercise. And then, so all my code went into the Library of Congress and we were completely open. We didn't hide it, we didn't, right? So starting in 82, you will see Right after that, by 84, you may remember this gnome, Eudora comes out, 85, right? So first of all, a lot of young people under the age of 40 do not know, you don't need the internet for email, okay? Remember, email was an inter-office application. So Are you frozen, doctor, after you said? Yeah, email was an- Frozen after you said, uh, you don't need the- um, You don't need the internet for email, okay? Before the World Wide Web came, before even you had the so-called internet, um, we had what was called local area networks or wide area networks. You had a bunch of computers get connected up physically, interconnected by wire. Applications would run and email was a inner office application, right? So this is hard for people to understand. So up until 93, email was an application that ran inside the intranets, right? Or wide area networks. Um, so if you looked at the number of people used email between like 1970 and 1993, Maybe it was a million people, maybe a couple hundred thousand people, right? On a good day in some companies. But in 1993, the World Wide Web came, which made the internet a household application because it was a web-based front end on the internet. And then you see applications like Hotmail come, uh, Yahoo, et cetera. Doesn't mean email did not exist before that. It did. It was an office application. Does that make sense? Also, yeah, CompuServe uh, was early. That, that's, that wasn't the internet, right? That was- uh, Yeah, that, that was, was still like a wide area network, right? It was a private network. But the point is, when I created emails for the inner office application, now, here's the interesting thing. When I came to MIT in 1981, you'll see it on the front page of MIT, they highlighted three kids who had invented something of note, okay? One was me and a couple, two other kids. So clearly MIT knew this was something important. So, you know, I didn't think much of it. Um, I was more interested in medicine I went in and out of MIT between 1981 all the way up until 2011, did four degrees, started seven companies.
And it was only in 2011, something interesting occurred, right? So during those 33 years, I wasn't out there saying, I'm the inventor of email, right? Give me royalties, you know, put me in the hall of fame, all that stuff. But in 2011, something interesting happened out of my dear mother, amazing woman. You got to understand, India has a caste system, if you guys know what that is, where we were considered untouchables. The lowest. Uh, you, you, you froze. Can you repeat that, uh, yeah. doctor? Yeah. So a little bit of background. India has a caste system. Okay. Are you familiar with that? Where yeah. it's a it's a very draconian system. We were considered in India the lowest of the low. My parents should never have been educated. The fact that my mom and dad got educated is one in a trillion to the power of a trillion. The fact that we even made it here was quite significant. So, um, you know, my mom was very instrumental in being, uh, you know, guiding me to always remember where we came from. So in 2011, when she was dying, she had three months to live in a suitcase. She had saved Hatem, Dan, and Noam, all of that artifacts, all the computer code, all the tapes, all the copyright notice, and she gave it to me. Now, that month, November 11, 2011, the only journalist to this day who went through all that material was a guy called Doug Amet, the senior technology editor at Time. And Doug went through it and he wrote a very important feature piece called The Man Who Invented Email in Time Magazine. No one thought anything about that. And then I got a call from the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. They called me and also the Computer History Museum. They said, oh my God, we want this material. And I wasn't sure who to give it to. A friend of mine, Larry said, give it to uh, Smithsonian, it'll stay there forever. So on uh, February 16th, 2012, it was a great honor. You know, I was honored. They received all these materials. Um, and you would think this should be one of the greatest American stories, right? A young 14-year-old kid did this before coming to MIT. And you got to understand, up until that point, I was on the front page of MIT for inventing many other things, winning the Fulbright, doing Echo Mail. So it was like I was like a golden boy for MIT. So the day it went into the Smithsonian, young Washington Post reporter, uh, Emmy Kalawale, wrote an article called Dr. Shiva Ayadure Honored uh, for the Invention of Email. And that's when the proverbial shit hits the fan. What should have been a day for celebration, all the liberal elite historians could not stand the fact that how dare this guy say he, he wrote email, okay? Because they had written the narrative that uh, it was a little nerd looking guy with a little beard hunched over who was working for a multi-billion dollar company called Raytheon, who during starting in 2009, had changed their entire branding. Raytheon was a big missile defense company. They compete with Northrop Grumman, uh, Lockheed. And if you remember around 2009, missile sales were going down. Cybersecurity was going up right, right after 9-11. So all the big defense companies are moving into cybersecurity. Raytheon, which I came to find out, had branded their company as the inventors of email. Why? Because they, you know, they, everyone wanted to bug email. And they had found this guy who did create email. He used the at logo to simply exchange text messages. It was like the caveman version of Reddit. He himself admitted he only spent 15 minutes. That's not email. It's adding text to the bottom of a file. But they had done this amazing, probably $50 million branding campaign. They were the inventors of email. So when my stuff went into the Smithsonian, Atem, I was essentially affecting their $270 million revenue source. That's how much they were making from presenting themselves in government RFPs as the inventors of email. So you can see them, the computer historians who are in collusion with these guys, big academia, thousands of calls coming to MIT. I was teaching a class at MIT for nothing, not like Elizabeth Warren, while I was running my company. All right. Yeah. 
and thousands of calls come in. This guy's a fraud. Da 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 da. Gawker Media, if you remember them, called yeah. me an asshole, a dick. People wrote blogs like this curry stain Indian should be should be hanged. Unbelievable. 2012. This is not like Jackie Robinson. And if you unravel this, all of this was inspired by the white liberal elites in academia who had written the narrative that all great innovations must come from the military industrial academic complex. So that's 20, 2012. And I'm, you know, I'm like watching what the fuck is going on here, right? I got four degrees from MIT. I won a Fulbright. I didn't want this shit. I gave it to the Smithsonian to celebrate the American dream. And they, and they asked you for it. You didn't even go to them. I didn't even go to them. And you can they wanted they wanted it from me, right? And you can see this Washington Post reporter gets railroaded. Oh, why did you call him the inventor of email? She gets thrown under the bus. I mean, it's a crazy controversy, okay? That was created by the elites because this was like a new skull was found in Africa. So why is this so controversial? Well, when you, when you say a new skull, when you say new, when you say new skull, you you, you froze it, but you mean a new skull found in Africa. Well, the or, origin of well, where was the origin of hum humanity? Where was the it, origin it upends, of? It upends the prevailing wisdom of, of a whole, and and everybody rely on people have have a stake in that in that previous wisdom, so they don't want to acknowledge. Right, that. and what is that previous wisdom? So at the middle of that, I'm trying to find lawyers to sue Gawker. Gawker's destroying my reputation. Overnight, my four degrees, everything I'd work for means nothing, and people are laughing at me. Ha ha ha! Oh, Al Gore. No, you fucking idiot. I actually did. Now you want to challenge me? I never wanted credit for the invention of email. But you know what? I did invent email and I will get the credit I deserve. I never asked for it before. So what ends up happening is four years later, I find an attorney. Uh, you, you, you yeah. You froze again. Yeah. So four years later, I find an attorney called Charles Harder. When I was out in um, Hollywood, he had just sued on behalf of Hulk Hogan. Um, Gawker. Oh, yeah. If you remember, yeah, yeah, Gawker yeah. had put out sex videos of him banging his, you know, wife's girlfriend, whoever. Right? They pushed that out there. So I uh, went to Charles. Charles looked at all this stuff. He goes, "Oh my God, you did invent email." He took it on contingency. So Hulk had just won a hundred forty million dollar settlement, which was under appeal. I sued for thirty five million. Thirty days after I sued, Gawker claims bankruptcy. So this. You froze again, Doctor. Yeah, days later they went bankrupt. Yeah, 30 days after I sued for 35 million, Gawker claims bankruptcy. And here's the karma of the whole thing. I get appointed the chairman of the bankruptcy committee to sell Gawker. <laughs> okay. They are forced to give me a, a very significant settlement, close to a million bucks. And not only that, all those three defamatory articles are pulled down by the new owners. Yeah. And yet, Wikipedia, the scumbags, racist scumbags at Wikipedia, that's what they are. Liberal elite racist scumbags never want to take it down and they keep this controversy going. And in fact, I got an Well, I, I'm just uh I don't hello, you're go, go, go ahead, Daniel. So, say something? Oh, I was saying that uh well I uh I'm just looking at an article, Wire magazine, which I think is a pretty uh, good I guess a pretty prestigious publication in the tech world, but uh they give credit to both you and uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, Tomlinson. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't create email. He, he, you, know, you know what's what's interesting? So, is that so here's they, 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 they say it's that, not even uh, close. That both of you had a, huh? had, a, had an important role to play. Yeah, he didn't or have any. If you, well, play, well, if you check the timeline, I mean, it's obvious. You know, uh, 
uh, where it go. But, I, I but, but, but let's just stop. Let's Dan, Dan, let's define email. First of all, first of all, who came up with the term? I did. Who copyrighted it? I did. Who wrote email is that first of all, as the inventor of email, let me tell you what email is. Email is not the simple exchange of text messages. I have never claimed to be the inventor of electronic messaging. That goes back to Samuel Morse, but I created email, the system, which is the electronic replica of the inner office mail system. The reason when you open email, what do you see, Dan? You see inbox, outbox, folders, right? The address book, attachments, that is the electronic. Tomlinson wrote 15 lines of code, just 15 lines in 15 minutes, to, to simply add text to the bottom of a file using the at logo, all right? And that is not email. So they conflated it and they, and remember, you gotta understand, BBNN and the military, if you go read the essays, they were always trying to take credit for everything they did because to get military contracts. So they would conflate everything they did. There's a very famous essay written by the guy and he said, and they argued all night as to who would get credit for stuff that they didn't create, okay? So when I came in 2012, it was like a bomb went off, man, because getting back to a gnome and I, we were discussing the real issue here is, the real central issue is, by the way, in the middle in 2014, in the middle of this controversy, the liberal elite author, Walter Isaacson, who'd written the, you know, the autobiography of, of uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Steve Jobs, he suddenly, it's almost like they commissioned him. I mean, this controversy was wild. Noam Chomsky even got involved in this, okay? Chomsky even said, if you read the Wired article, he goes, it's black and white. He goes, a 14-year-old kid invented email. You can go look it up, type in Noam Chomsky. Noam was looking at it, he goes, it's, it's obvious who invented email. And he's a linguist, okay? The, one of the number one, quoted scholars in human history. So when you look at it, so why did Walter Isaacson, Walter Isaacson writes a book in the middle of this controversy calling the innovators of the digital revolution. Just pick up the book, big thick book. Innovators of the digital revolution. Don't you think email was part of the digital revolution? He doesn't even mention it. And you know what he gives all the credit to? And you read, it's all white guys, white guys and white women. Don't take it the wrong way, okay? And he attributes all of innovation to the military industrial academic complex, the golden triangle. And in his book, he said he ends with thanking Vannevar Bush. Well, who's Vannevar Bush? Vannevar Bush was a president of MIT in 1940s who left MIT to start Raytheon. And that was a period when people say all of pure academia ended because that was a year when public funds started going into military research. We started diverting public funds. So why is this important? Because it's important because Americans have been brainwashed to think we go fund war to go kill other people. And then you get innovation. Thank you for Tang. Thank you for Velcro, but which weren't created by the military. So the invention of email is powerful, not just because I invented it, it's even deeper, is because where did that come from? It didn't come from the triangle of the military industrial academic complex. That's why Walter, shame on him, he fucking left it out of the book. Because if you originated, uh, it, it doctor, I, want, I want to ask you a question. I, I wait for you to unfreeze. No, no, yeah, no. Let me just finish this one point. Okay, the invention of email was not solving a military problem of exchanging text messages. It was a civilian application intended to free women from the typewriter and take them to the keyboard, which people in that era did not think was possible. Which was done by a fourteen-year-old American kid who had no prejudices. So the invention of email actually freed women from the typewriter to the keyboard. 
Had it been for those nerds wearing their white jackets, they would never have invented email. In fact, there's an article that came out in 1977 written by a guy called David Crocker, who later was attacking me. He said, it is impossible to create a system like this. All right. So the bottom line is innovation comes anytime, any place by anybody. The invention of email points to the fact that great innovations come from solving civilian problems, not by going and killing other people. This is what bothers them. And you know what really bothered them? That in, they these guys are racist in the sense, Indians are supposed to shake their heads and be like Gandhi and be all nonviolent and unaggressive. Well, I wasn't willing to be that. You see, I was breaking another mold. I wasn't a little nerd with glasses, all hunched over. I was a soccer player, I played sports. And you know what? When they did this to me, I, I did not let go. I came back and fought. I didn't say, okay, right? So the problem is you're breaking a lot of molds here because, and by the way, a 14 year old kid is one who invented TV. Look it up, Philo Farnsworth yeah. in Franklin, Idaho. It was a Michigan mechanic who created the windshield wiper who MIT professors stole from him. So the truth is innovation occurs outside of the bastions of big academia. They've created a narrative. You go there and you get anointed, then you can be Mark Zuckerberg. You can drop out and be cool or Bill Gates. Yeah. This is what bugs them. They want to centralize where everything comes from. I want, I want to ask you a question because I'm very interested in this. I hear a big, and you correct me if I'm wrong, of course, I hear a big undertone here of, um, of politics, the, li the liberal, essentially, uh, when you say the liberal elite racist, you're essentially liberal hypocrites is, is what I hear coming from you. Um, yeah, I'm, when, I, when I say, by the way, let me put the word liberal, everything I've said should be in double quotes. Classic, I'm not talking about classical liberalism, which is, right. you know, which I'm a proponent of, frankly. I'm talking about the quote unquote liberal people who say, oh, I want to help the darkies. I want to help the poor people. I want, no, you don't want to help them. You want to keep them in your containment. Yeah. Right. So when I was at MIT, the dark skinned guy, front page, oh, he invented this. He invented this. I was helping MIT's narrative of diversity and inclusivity. I was their golden boy. But the day I said, wait a minute, no, I did invent email before I came to your institution. Then you're going against even MIT's narrative because, you know, billions of dollars flow into MIT and Harvard as though they're the centers of innovation. You see, this so, is. I, I, I want to say two quick things and then I like to move to politics a little bit. One yeah. is Wikipedia. Uh, it's not. We had so many guests that their Wikipedia is totally misleading. You know, and I, we talked about this a little bit before the show. It says horrible things about them, all great things about them, and it's so not true. You know, <laughs> the other thing is that they have, actually, I never said that story before, but I have a, a friend of mine, he's, he's Egyptian, he moved in from Egypt like years ago, and he invented something in a car, and he went to sell it to Ford. You pay him $30,000 and stole it from him. Yeah. So it's totally, and now it's like it's worth millions of dollars. So it's, um, how do you steal from him and pay him for it? I don't get it. Uh, well, through the lawyer. Well, I think I think what I think what maybe we're we'll saying, Hatem, is they didn't pay him. Actually, I'm not sure if it's Ford. I don't know. I don't want to say they, the they wrong. took him. They took him because he was naive. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. Because a lot of people don't know the system. Because uh, you know, a lot of times, like uh, Dr. Shiva was saying, it's like when you invent something, you're happy that you achieve something. A lot of time for human beings, it's different than when you hire to to achieve something rather than you know you really want to do. So I, I don't mean to push back because I basically agree with you, but it, sh it should be noted that that you know people who buy venture capital or people who buy inventions or whatever it is, they often end up probably way more often than not buying something that fizzles into nothing. So yeah. of course that you know if they buy something, well, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think that's the issue. Look, the, the real the more deeper issue on this is look if you look at, it grows I think the deeper issue is this. 
you know, had, I think, uh, hold on. Can you guys hear me right? Had, yeah. imagine if Newark, New Jersey also had an ecosystem environment of VCs and venture capitalists and kids were trained there, right? You know, I would have taken right, it. Froze again, doctor. Yeah, what I'm trying to say is the environment around the, you know, three mile radius around Newark, New Jersey, where I invented email was basically all African-Americans, poverty, slums, et cetera. It wasn't like Silicon Valley where you had, you know, this teeming group of venture capitalists and parents yeah. pushing their kids, right? So the point is, where do these ecosystems of innovation take place, right? Who is funding that? And I would argue, which I was writing a piece on, that the powers that be try to farm innovation like they try to farm genetically engineered foods. Like it can only occur around the two mile radius around MIT. So they'll put, they'll plow money into that or the two mile radius around Silicon Valley, like two centers. Now, if you thought about innovation as something of a weed, imagine you threw five to $10,000 everywhere, all over, you'd probably have amazing innovations like we've never thought of. Right now, we haven't really made anything significant. Twitter is not an innovation. Facebook isn't anything stellar. So if you look at the last 50 years, we're like in the toilet of innovation. There's not any major breakthroughs that have come out in innovation. Yeah, mRNA technology, but you, you mean in, in the well, well, yeah, I mean, mRNA technology, that was done again by a Hungarian woman who had to fight for it for 18 years. It came out of the outside. That was done again by a... Well, if you really look at mRNA, it didn't come out of MIT or Harvard. It came from a woman, a Hungarian woman, who yeah, everyone yeah. was yeah. attacking her, okay? It yeah. took her many, many years to get, again, it came from the outside of the realms of the centers of innovation. Most of these, today, what's happened with academia since 1971, with the passage of the Mansfield Amendment, is academia is basically mediocre people at best. It's all become a sales operation. And a lot of plagiarism. If you look at most of the journals today, they just steal like crazy, no? So yeah. the real innovators are still at the edges. Innovation never occurs in the center. It occurs in the edges. It occurs when people are solving a problem. And, and, in, and in comedy too, right? Then the people are still all over. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, look, you look at some of the greatest comedians. You we're not we're not of great significance to the world. But actually, I'm not going to mention somebody, but there's somebody that stole award for award from Seinfeld, and he became huge. I don't talk about that. So, so doctor, I want to. No, 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 uh, doctor. So you know, the, the racial thing is is very interesting. And this, um, of course, Dan will say that all subjects lead me to this, but you know, you're not going to talk about the Asians at Harvard. Yeah, well, you would think. Like from my point of view, and this and this dovetails with the mRNA thing. In my old-fashioned view of my old-fashioned patriotic view, these are American success stories and and proof of what's wonderful about the the, the American idea that it, you know the mRNA mRNA story has women, immigrants, Hungarians, black people. They say, well, this is America, and this is. At the same time, the liberal view, and I hesitate to use the word Asian because I don't understand why they lump uh, East Asian and South Asians as as one group, and they're, they're you know nothing to do with each other. But they are limiting you know descendants of China, Japanese, Korean, right. maybe they, maybe it's Indian people as well, um, and and they don't want too many of them at at Harvard and the like. And to me, I said this over and over. Nothing would make me prouder of my country if Harvard were eighty percent Asian, and we could and we could deal with it. 
In other words, like who gives a shit if they're 80% Asian, as long as the 80% are filled with the, with the most qualified people, you know, and that could even include giving special consideration to descendants of slaves who, who ought to, you know, because of the life experience, uh, be treated, you know, as in, in a way which is fair, whatever you want to call that. But the idea that it should matter to the liberal elite, that it matters to them that there are too many Asians represented anywhere is such utter hypocrisy. I don't understand how they get away with it. Yeah, yeah. You agree with me, doctor? So Yeah, so let, let me just un, 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 sort of unpack what you just said, right? Yeah. I think what you're saying is the... Yeah, so, so if you really think about it, this is about centralization of narrative cent- control, all right? Um, people are trying to control the narrative of pretty much anything, right? So if you truly had an open market, free economy, and true, the classic... Right, again, doctor. Yeah, if you had the true classical liberal sense of an open market economy, like Adam Smith talked about, for that matter, even Marx talked about, Okay. If you go read Das Kapital, the first chapters, right? If you truly had an open free market economy, it would be the people who worked hard, people who pursued their dreams, and that's what you have. But the quote unquote modern liberals want to centralize power. They do not want decentralization because decentralization means they lose control of the narrative. And that's what it's fundamentally about because they would probably realize that they probably shouldn't be in the positions they're in. Look, yeah. most of the you know, most of the Ivy League, there's five, I froze again, sorry, there's five probably university professors, university presidents who control science throughout the world today. Five of them. You can have the Fauci or the NIH make phone calls to five guys and they control science worldwide now. It's massive centralization of power, massive centralization of innovation. So that's why the story of the invention of email is powerful because it fucks them up. It's like email came from, oh, it didn't come from the military industry. It didn't come from people looking like nerds and looking all fucked up. Yeah. Look, when I came- I, I always wonder why why there's um, number five is always, like there's five mob families, five doctors. I never family. thought about that. I know yeah, it's I, I, I could have chosen seven, but-, <laughs> but. So let, let, me, let me ask you this. I want to move, in, uh, move on to something else. I, I watched um, your live stream yesterday and I highly recommend anybody who's listening to uh, follow Dr. Shiva's uh, YouTube channel. Um, and you, you basically, it was, it was very interesting. You, you basically um, addressed what you called the fake fight between Democrats and Republicans. But you, you said that they, they don't really want to solve any problems. And that was- No, they don't. Uh, in a way, no? No, look, what America has it been... Froze again, Doc. Yeah, sorry. America has been entertained, okay, by Hollywood, right? And, 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 you know, I'm sure you guys know in the comedy world, even Hollywood has become a production engine. There's probably great actors who never get there, right? Celebrities versus great actors or great comedians who tell great stories. So Hollywood is about or call Bollywood in India, right? You have the masses of people who suffer. So you give them a distraction, right? To give them like aspirin, to watch some crap. And then you go, they go back to toil. And that hasn't changed since probably Roman times. So politics is, you know, I think Gore Vidal said something interesting. He said, politicians are basically ugly looking celebrities. Okay. So politics is in some ways, sorry about that. I'm not sure. His view was politics is very much like 
politics is very much like Hollywood, right? So you have the left and the right, Republicans and Democrats, and they entertain people. That's what they are. Tucker Carlson is an entertainer. He'll put on his face and act like he cares. And same with Cuomo, et cetera. And so it's kind of like Schwarzenegger and Stallone at that time when they were like, or, or, making or, money. or Trump and Biden. Okay. Oh, yeah. And Trump spoke a lot of the words as anti-establishment, just like Jesse Jackson did. No, you may remember him in 84, the rainbow movement. And at the end of the day, he gave all of his votes to Walter Mondale. We have to do the better, lesser of two evils. So what I've come to realize when you take an engineering systems approach is you have the head of the establishment, let's say the Eagle's head. You have the shoulders, which are the obvious establishment. Let's say on one hand, the Bidens and the Obamas and the Clintons. And the other hand, you have the McConnells and the Romneys. The wings of the establishment are the ones that keep people entertained. The Bernie Sanders and the AOCs on the left. They talk enough shit against the DNC and they keep people, you know, workers, blah, 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 blah. And same with Trump or Ted Cruz or Hawley. And these people keep people entertained. So people think they're actually fighters. But at the end of the day, they never want to solve a problem. They always want to create the dialectic left and right. So if you look at the voting issue right now, what we uncovered in Massachusetts, my own elections, is that, yes, there is a real issue with election integrity. There is a real issue. And that issue is going back to 2002. The state election directors allow voting machines to have a feature, and it's called a weighted race feature. It's on page 2-126 of the manuals. So if Noam got a 1,000 votes, and let's say he's running against Dan, who got a 1,000 votes, I can flip a switch. Noam's votes get counted two for every one. And Dan's get counted 0.5 for everyone. Noam gets 2,000 votes. Dan gets a 500 votes. This is a feature. All right. This is a real crime scene. The fact that computer algorithms are allowed in these electronic voting machines. Instead of discussing that, the left will talk about voter suppression of blacks and brown people. Right. So they get to own the black and brown. And now you have the right wing talk about voter IDs and mail-in ballots. Okay. And they'll just you know, talk at each other and, and they'll raise money out of that. But what I uncovered was when you take a systems approach, it is the fact that the electronic voting machines have the ability to multiply votes by a factor and our votes are stored as decimal numbers. You don't see this anywhere. You don't You're froze after a factor. Yeah. Uh, by, so, so, so just, just to know where the rubber hits the road, do you don't think there's any chance or uh, that Trump actually won the election? Do you or do you? I don't know. Well, I have a position on this. Look, I gave, I never voted in my life, Noam, ever. Because I. But by the time I was 18, 19, I figured out both these parties were full of shit. When Trump ran, I saw, I liked him. He, he, he was hitting both parties. But at the end of the day, the conclusion I've come to is Trump, as I said in my thing, I was going off on him. You know, I, you know, I gave him money. I said, is that he was part of this. He was part of the WWE. I mean, he came from WWE wrestling, didn't he? Or WWF, yeah. right? He's a... He's a so if we, if we, Dr. Anyway, but, again, but I want to know, I want to know if he thinks that the, the voter, the voter vulnerabilities that you see in our, in our systems, do you think that it actually was decisive in this election in any way? Well, what I'm trying to say is the voter irregularities you're talking about is not the voter irregularities that I brought out. Okay. Right. And Trump never retweeted me until he saw me expose what happened in Michigan and the mathematical analysis, it, because he needed me. Look, that RNC and Trump were running a fake election fraud campaign, a fake one, because they were raising money. They made 300 million bucks, you know, riling up all the Trumpers. A real crime scene 
is a fact that these are embedded in the voting machines and both Democrats and Republicans have been doing this, both of them, at least since 2002. So we have selections in this country, we don't have elections. And this is hard for the American to fully fathom because we always talk about some generals in Africa or some Chile or India. It's always some dark and brown people who run fake elections, not white guys in America. And this is not China. This is why I disagree with Lindell pointing at China. This is people, red-blooded Americans here, state election directors, Republicans and Democrats are certifying voting machines, knowing what the hell they're doing. They're deleting ballot images, which is a violation of federal law. Trump never focused on this. Look, I have, if Trump never focused on this, I have two lawsuits that I'm representing myself in federal court. I've gotten four victories by myself. The only two lawsuits that haven't been thrown out. I was actually about to say that, that you, you ran twice. And the second time you from, I think there's 45 lawsuits and the only two lawsuits that weren't thrown out were yours, right? Everyone else. (laughs) Everyone uh, was thrown out. Yeah. So. Uh, I want to discuss about like you running. So the first time you ran against, I'm gonna need to go. Gonna need to go. Sorry, I hang here for five more minutes. I have to go. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, You ran against Elizabeth uh, uh, Warren the first time and second time uh, recently in the last election, and and you have two lawsuits. They're still going on, right? Yeah. The great news is we have two lawsuits. One is when I exposed the fact that the government had uh, deleted ballot images. Just to be clear, this is why I'm a big proponent of, even though, you know, as the inventor of email, I'm saying we need to go back to hand counted paper ballots. It's the only way out of this. There's no other way. Is that when you use the electronic machines, your paper becomes an image and the machine is figuring out where the dots are. Okay. That's a ballot image. They're supposed to be preserved for 22 months. So when I expose that they deleted all of them, expose this Secretary of State, and I put it up on Twitter. This, the government, check this out. It wasn't Twitter took me down. The government contacted Twitter to take me down for three weeks in the middle of my U.S. Senate campaign. I took that to federal court. First of all, the judge heard it, which is a big thing. He didn't throw it out for victory number one. Victory number two, he gave me all the terms of my restraining order. He lambasted the secretary of state. He goes, why did you not simply go on Twitter and argued out with Dr. Shiva? And he said he, he restrained them from contacting Twitter. The third thing is just a couple of weeks ago, he said he wants me to also bring in Twitter. That's a $1.2 billion. You froze after the third thing. Third thing, third thing is he also wants me to bring in Twitter, okay, into the lawsuit. Okay. That's a federal judge who, by the way, took on Whitey Bulger, the biggest criminal in, in Massachusetts, probably in the country. The second lawsuit, I mathematically showed that they multiplied my votes by two-thirds, Hatem. Okay. And I mathematically showed it. No one has rebutted it. They filed hundreds of pages to have that mo- uh, that lawsuit dismissed. The judge denied their motion. So I got two lawsuits, not done by lawyers, but by me. Because you can't trust any of the lawyers here. They're all wired into the swamp. Yeah. So I have the two most important historic lawsuits, which go to the heart of the American democratic issue. We no longer have one person, one vote. It's not guaranteed. That's what happened in 1964 when Earl Warren ruled, clarified the 14th Amendment. So people need to get the hell off their butts and realize that Republicans and Democrats are both scumbags. They make up some random issues, mail-in ballots and you know voter IDs and voter suppression, pit blacks against whites. They don't want to address the central issue. It's these so voting what's the machines. solution then? The solution is, here's a solution. Election day should be a national holiday, number one. Number two, 
All the votes should be hand-marked paper ballots counted at the precinct, counted on that day and posted immediately. None of this electronic stuff. Look, we've used hand-marked things for years. We don't need all this electronic crap. It's unnecessary. It allows centralization, centralization of innovation, centralization of voting. You see, they want centralization because you can flip things quickly. It's very dangerous. I'm telling you, (laughs) as a technologist, some things should not be technological. They should go back to paper. I would would just say, uh, let me just uh, drop in a joke quickly. Just like when you cancel your gym membership, you have to go personally and sign a letter. You can't just email them. They would never take it. Right. That's not the same thing. Anyway, um, uh, (laughs) so uh, there is there is this uh, there is this infatuation with technology, which some of which some of some of it, which I would say is not due to any malign intent. So, for instance, in school, my kids are in school now and and the schools are desperate to teach them everything with a computer. But the fact is that my kids do much better with paper flashcards, learning their math facts than they do with any piece of software they've ever been put in front of they just but they even though you can't really improve on the flashcard they're just ena- so enamored with the higher tech sheen of it all that uh they can't resist i think it's similar in voting like if, if, if it can do this it must be better well, sometimes it's not better well there, there's a great guy you may want to look this guy uh, dennis noble david noble okay he was a professor at mit history of science professor he wrote an article known Uh, two weeks before his tenure was coming due, where he said that MIT professors stole the entire basis of control systems from a Michigan mechanic who for 40 years built the automatic windshield wiper, all right? And he doesn't get tenure, okay? It was awful. And and anyway, he took him into court. It was a great court case. But David Noble uh, ended up, I think, being appointed at the Smithsonian, and he wanted to do a exhibit on Ludditism. Luddite means we go back to levers and pulleys, not all this technology. And I think the Smithsonian got rid of him. But he came to a conclusion that certain things should not be technology, that almost the right technology at a certain point in evolutionary development is for us to realize, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Okay. Just because you can go manipulate genes with mRNA and do this and this, well, should we be doing that? You see, just because we can do electronic voting, should we be doing that? You see, the, I think the higher form of intelligence comes just because you can do that, should we be doing that? Okay, yeah. let's say I can put a monkey's head on a human being or a human head on a monkey's, well, should we be doing that? These are much more the real technology issues. And just because we can do electronic voting doesn't mean we should be doing it. Yeah. So I think this I- is... I have to go. I'm yeah. sorry, I have to go. I plan it. I have. Uh, we, 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 I talk to you later, no. I, I have a, a two thirty. Nice meeting, you, Noam. Okay. Yeah. Really good to meet you. I'd love to meet you in person if you if you uh, come to New York. Yeah, definitely. I I have a place there, so yeah, let's do that. Oh, great. So, Hatsum, give me his email address, okay? We'll, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll take care of it. Yeah, because- uh, Doctor Shiva, I wanted to ask you about one of one of the uh, you know interesting stuff. Also. Um, uh, if you want to tell me about the Truth, Freedom, and Health program that you created. Yeah, yeah, let's let's do that. This is important because yeah. I'm also sharing this with people. Look, um, so when you look at, you know, my the two things that motivated me, you know, that were sort of my forces that got me involved in politics and medicine. I mean, there's a reason I was working at that medical school, right? Was because uh, I grew up in an India where I recognized this caste system, right? 
So as a four-year-old kid, man, I was like, what the hell is this about? You know, I go to my best friend's home. His mother keeps me outside, gives me water in a different cup. It was quite hurtful. And that's when I realized about this thing called the caste system. So I started reading since I was a kid, everything I could do on politics. I studied every political movement. And that was one stream. The other thing was my grandmother was a poor village farmer. She was a healer and she could look at your face. She could predict what was going on in your body, practicing a traditional system of medicine. So I was interested in that system. So over, you know, that was what, four, over, you know, it took me about 53, 50 years, all those degrees at MIT, inventing many, many things. And then in my Fulbright going back to India, I realized that everything in the universe is a system. Number one, first principle, everything, your body, the computer, uh, po political systems. And then if you look at every system in the universe, man-made or natural, they all follow very particular principles, a, a finite set of principles. And those principles, I was able to see that they existed in all in Eastern systems, Western systems. And I wrote a very important paper where I recognized this and I realized that I could teach Hottman like three hours, anyone that they didn't need to go to MIT, the science of everything, the science of systems. So that became the basis of a course I did for many, many years at MIT elsewhere. And then when the political movement started, I realized that these same principles also existed in political systems. So when I looked at truth, freedom, and health, that those words aren't just political slogans. They directly relate to something in universal systems theory called transport, conversion, and storage. Okay? Transport, conversion, and storage. And what does that mean? That means transport is a phenomenon of movement of information, matter, and energy, right? You know how a bird flies or the wind, um, anything movement, okay? Bowel movements, okay? Anything movement, okay, in your body. The second principle, so that's freedom, movement. The second principle is there's a feature in nature where we can take one form and convert it to another, right? Energy into mass equals MC squared, right? You eat something, your body digests it, right? And you get energy from it. That's called the principle of conversion. In science, you, you get an idea and you convert it to a truth. That's the truth piece. The third principle is structure. You know, I have this cup of tea here. Well, you know what people forget? The cup, right? The thing that contains this or your skeletal structure. That's called the structural piece. Your health is the thing that sustains you. So truth, freedom, and health is directly related to these three fundamental principles. So this is a big discovery that I've made. I've essentially discovered, I, I think the biggest, separate from email and the other things, is this discovery that there's a unifying principle to everything in the universe. Yeah, okay? absolutely. And, and the thing is, like, I like how you also, like, related, like, you know, to have, like, the health is very important for you to be able to go with the, you know, with the, with, to have freedom and then uh, be part of the political issue. And I like, like, also on your website, I suggest everybody goes to, it's like you give the information. You're not trying to tell people what you think. You just give them the information, the correct information, kind of educating them in the system. Right. Look, people have to raise their consciousness, okay? Uh, because people right now, people's political consciousness is left, right, Trump, Bernie, you know, it's, it's just entertainment. It's WWF wrestling. So yeah. the goal here is what I realized was 30% of people are never going to change no matter what you tell them the truth. 20% will just listen to whatever you say, the echo chambers. The 50% of people on any issue are the ones we need to educate. But we're not going to be able to do that unless the 20% know how to educate them. So you have to educate the educated, uneducated, to educate. So what I teach 
you know, if people go to vashiva.com, you guys should promote this vashiva.com slash join is that I've used my entire data center now, my technology capabilities. So I've built a platform. It's a technology platform. It's an educational platform. It's a community platform. It's an activism platform. And this is underground, right? So independent of big tech. So number one, I educate people in three hours. I do a personal class every Monday evening. So quite a bit of my time. But my goal is I want to educate 50,000 people all over the world. What I call truth, freedom, and health warriors. They need to understand, number one, the physics of change. And I wrote a book called System and Revolution. And I actually define what is revolution in a very precise way. Then people need to understand that that foundation can be used for understanding three principles. The interrelation between truth, freedom, and health. Why we need to create a bottoms-up movement. And the third most important thing is we need to identify the real scumbags who stop movements. And it's not the Hillary Clintons and the Mitch McConnells. It's the not so obvious establishment. It's the people who talk a good game. On the right now, frankly, it's Trump. Okay. He sold all the Trumpers out. And on the left, it's people like Bernie and AOC. They exist to talk shit against the establishment, but to keep people within the wings of the establishment and or the Kennedys. So yeah. the goal is number one, to educate people. Number two, we've created our own platform, independent of big tech, where people can now communicate. Because once you raise your consciousness, you're going to look around and you're going to say, wow, I need to find people that I can communicate with. So we've created that. And the third is we're giving people what they can do on the ground, like actual things. So on the elections issue, we've come up with a simple program. Everyone can go on the ground to their local town clerks, write a little email, which we've crafted for them and ask them for two pieces of information, which is, I want the list of voters who voted in that election and the actual ballots. So let's say this is P and this is V. P better match V. And if they don't, we're going to start filing lawsuits because I know how to file lawsuits now. Yeah. Bottoms up movement. You know, I say F the Republicans, F the, if, if you're into the Republican Democrat, you know, left right narrative in 2021, it's like you're living in like freaking 18, 1500s, you know? It's like yeah. medieval thinking. And people need to get their head out of you know what, because if they're still doing that, you're you're like saying, yeah, I want to be misled. I'm a fool. Please mislead me. Democrat mislead me. Republican mislead me. So the goal is to raise people's consciousness, yeah. but with giving them an engineering physics. So yeah. three hours, we can train people. They don't need to go to MIT, but we're going to give them a foundation in science so they can actually see this. And, and by the way, we've created tools where people can use the same thing to understand their body as a system. It's the same principles, man. That's what's so beautiful about it. Yeah. It's, it's not. It's like one science. You can understand all of this. Absolutely. And I, I, I highly recommend. Go. I actually went and I end up spending a lot of time on the website. It's very, it's very entertaining, very educational. And uh, and as I said, I like when I go to places where people don't tell me how to think, but analyze and educate. Uh, Dr. Shiva, that was great uh, interview. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Dan. You come visit us at the Comedy Cellar whenever you come. Yeah, by the way, everyone listen, you guys at the Comedy Cellar, right? The famous Comedy Cellar where all the comedians are? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, Dan, do you want to share your information or anything you're working um, on? Well, but or anything you're promoting? across the social media spectrum at Dan Matter. And okay. he's in Aruba right now performing. Um, I'm in Aruba. Thanks to the miracle of technology, I'm coming up. <laughs> All right. Sure. Well, would you like to uh, promote anything coming up for your website? Well, yeah, I think the most important Which thing. I have the yeah, the most important thing everyone need to know is, look, we're at an important time in history. You can't be foolish anymore following parties. Go to vashiva.com, you know, and 
uh, we've created an environment. Anyone, and, and by the way, it's all people when they support us. Uh, I, I can't take money, as I've said, without giving something back. That's sort of what my great grandfather taught me. So when people support us, I give you books and materials. And if you want to support us more, I give you more stuff. Okay. But the idea is we need to get educated or we will be enslaved. And the right education matters. You know, the guy, and I want to leave people with this a guy that uh, Alan McDonald, you know, he was a guy, the engineer at Morton Thiokol who exposed, you know, the O-rings when the space shuttle was about to go up. He said, look, I'm not going to sign off oh, yeah. on it. And he made a very interesting statement. He just died a couple of weeks ago. He said, you know, the most important thing in life is to do the right, say the right thing at the right time with the right people. You know, like with the this whole stuff with the pandemic. I mean, in March, I said this whole thing is a fear-mongering hoax. Later on, you know, a year later, now all these doctors come out. Oh, yeah, you know, they're signing these proposals. Well, where the hell were you a year ago? It doesn't matter now after we're all being, you know, locked down. It's very important in life to do the right thing at the right time. Not like when it's, okay, oh, everyone's Absolutely. now, right? So it's a very, so that's why it was a big thing for me to expose Trump for what he was, you know? And the Trumpers better listen up or you're just giving away your money to a guy who's got billions of dollars. And Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner made a shitload of money, okay? What the hell were these people doing in the White House? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense, all right? He never went after Hillary, lock her up. So people need to open their eyes. They need to let go of cult. They need to look at reality. And that's what we want to do. And if people are ready to do that, then we're going to have significant change. But if people want to be in the world of entertainment, which is actually bad entertainment, by the way, you guys probably do better entertainment. Comedians, actually, the great comedians are actually some of the greatest storytellers, right? Because you actually go at real truth, right? Biting truth. These guys don't even tell the truth even. They don't even <laughs> do truthful stuff. So thank you, Hatem. Thank you for the well, okay. Thank you. I hope to see you whenever I come to New York. Just hit me up. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, send send me all your guys' email. Via Shiva. Yeah, via Shiva. We'll do thank that. you. Yeah, and definitely. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, and have a great time. Yeah, same to uh, you. Be well. Thank you, Denim. Bye bye. Yeah. All right, everyone. This is Dr. Shiva. That was um, a thing I did with the guys from Comedy Cellar. So they wanted me to do a discussion on this, but I think the main thing I want to share with everyone is: look, um, just because we can invent something doesn't mean we should go make something. And I'm telling you that as an inventor, you know, I created Cytosolve and my goal in really doing that was to really help understand how my grandmother was able to mix stuff, you know? Um, but when you look at these electronic voting machines, why do we need it? Paper, let's go back to paper. So we have to really consider that. And so this is why we have to take a systems approach in life because without a systems approach, you will always be misled and you will always be screwing yourself over and you'll be screwing everyone else over. So that's why, you know, when I created, you know, the entire VA Shiva platform, it was really for you. Now, if you want to take advantage of it, great. And if you don't, that's fine also. But we need to build a bottoms up movement. We need to expose all the scumbags who talk, talk, talk. And the only way we're going to do that is we need to go bottoms up. So when I created the platform, when you go to vashiva.com slash join, um, you can see that this platform is really for you. And if you, you can go to vashiva, you can see the platforms there. And right at the bottom of it, right, I'll come back before I end, I'll play the video. But when you log in, we've created a whole range of things, right? We've created a dashboard, you log in. By the way, anyone can join for nothing. You don't have to contribute anything. You get access. Uh, to videos, you get access to activism. For example, you can distribute educating people on the real issue of oral health and masks, right? You can go educate people on this. 
okay? You can go educate people on um, the real issues having to do, oh, oops, sorry about that. Let me share the screen again. You can go educate people on the real issue of building, you know, immunity, uh, you know, boosting your immunity. It, it, it has nothing to do with getting involved in the pro-vax, anti-vax nonsensical fight. The real issue is are we gonna focus on the solution, which is people need to boost immunity. And that's why everything we do is to educate you to go beyond this left-right nonsense. So, you know, you go here, you can understand the real issue is beyond vax, anti-vax. We need to go to educate people. It's about one size fits all medicine is not the correct approach. And you guys can print this, share this with people. But the other thing is we've created a forum where independent of big tech, you can go start having good conversations with people. And you can see there's thousands and thousands of conversations now taking place with people all over the country. And the other piece that I've done is some of you may wanna actually become seriously educated. You may wanna take the courses and the books and, and that gives you the opportunity to really become part of a larger community of people and get educated. I'm not gonna, you guys can go check it out. Go to vashiva.com slash join. But we need to build a bottoms up movement and it's really up to you. And I'm a, basically a mere catalyst. I've been fortunate to be able to get this education as I've shared, but with this knowledge, you can start seeing the world in a completely different way. You can start seeing the world as systems and you can start understanding the principles of all systems. So that's what I encourage all of you to do because that principle will educate you far beyond you know, following any cult figure or any narrative. You'll have this scientific base and every Monday evenings, I do that tomorrow evenings from seven to 10 p.m. I do it. So I encourage all of you to do that and take advantage of that. So uh, go to vashiva.com slash join and you can see all the different tools we have. And again, just to share with you here, if you go here, you'll see, um, for example, um, on the site, you can go and get access to all the Foundations of Systems course. This is a Foundations of um, Systems, okay, where you actually can understand all the, you know, these. there's a whole course program here. You can get access to all the certification programs. That, but this is all included for anyone who supports a warrior program. If you go to vashiva.com slash warrior, and this is where I, I, we want to create a team of around, um, uh, we want around uh, 50,000 warriors. When you go to the warrior program, vashiva.com slash warrior, um, this is where you'll see that you will understand what this diagram is. This is, it'll take you two years at MIT to go through this, but in about an hour, I'll teach you the science of all systems then you can get access to the courses. Then you can actually get access to a way that you can teach others. You also get access to a tool that'll help you understand your body as a system. You can figure out what are the right foods and supplements that manipulate your body. You'll get access to the book, System and Revolution. You get access to a whole another set of other books to understand how systems principles go across all aspects of your life. And you know other scientific reports, but so it's education, and then you get access to these amazing tools where you can communicate without the risk of thinking you're going to be thrown off social media. So I encourage you to do that. And for example, here's a social media channel that we've built. This is all underground, independent of big tech, where you can sign in. You can go in to see you know, other members. You can um, you know, get an understanding of who's on the site. You can see these are all these other members that are there. You can easily see who's there, connect with them. And these are people all over the world now who are signing in to take advantage. So I, I hope you guys take advantage of that. We need to build a bottoms up movement. So anyway, I'm gonna leave with everyone with the video that I always like to play, but please go to vashiva.com. And I'm gonna be coming back later this evening to do a discussion on Neem. 
Neem is a very, very powerful uh, 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 capability for um, immunity, okay? So if you go to vhshiva.com slash join, um, contribute whatever you'd like to contribute, but know that when you contribute to our movement, you're going to get educated. I can't take something for nothing, so please take advantage of that. Thank you. So let me just play this. Be well. Have a good evening or have, good afternoon. We have allowed our country to be taken over from within, and the end goal is you will have a homogenized world where we will become slaves because there is a condition among the elites that really thinks they're better than you deep down inside them that you don't deserve the freedoms you have. They don't. This reality is what people need to wake up to. And we need to all unite working people. There's only one movement that can do that. And that is the movement that we started creating here in Massachusetts, the movement for truth, freedom and health. Look, I've been a student of politics since I was a four year old kid setting revolutionary movements, left wing, right wing. There's a physics, there's a nuclear science to destroying the establishment. To build a bridge, you need to understand Newton's equation. You need to understand the laws of gravity. You need to understand Poisson's ratio. There is a way to build a revolution. And that's why I put this together. My goal is to train a army of truth, freedom and health leaders. We don't need followers like social media. We need leaders, but they, they need training because the educational system does not teach them history, nothing. So in three hours, that's what I've started doing. That's the solution. We wow. got to train people first with understanding what a system is. The second is understanding the interconnection between truth, freedom, and health. Freedom is the ability to move freely, communicate freely, right? Talk freely. Without freedom, you cannot convert ideas, hypothesis into truth, which is science. And without freedom, you can't really get to truth. And without truth, you make up fake problems and fake solutions, which means you destroy our health. And without health, which is the infrastructure of us and our body, you can't fight for freedom. Third concept is it has to be bottoms up, working people, people who work united. And what the right wing has done is whenever you say working people unite, that must be communist. Meanwhile, they've let the Democrats run unions, which suppress workers, completely corrupt. But when you look at the arc of American history, it's been when working people came up. We need to go local. Every solution I'm coming up with as a part of this movement, we're giving the science, which is the truth, and then we tell people what they can do on the ground. Like with election fraud, we don't need to wait for some lawyer. Our goal is to train people today to go local, to go local, to go local, fight locally. Forget lawyers, forget politicians, forget celebrities. You've got to learn politics, and there is a science to it. They lock us down, we should be ready to shut them down. And the fourth part of this principle is a not so obvious establishment. So when you look at a system, there's always something that disturbs you from getting to your goal. Well, the biggest disturbance is a not so obvious establishment, which are those people who claim they're for you on the left and the right. The Al Sharptons who tell black people I'm for you. The Tucker Carlson's. Do you think any true anti-establishment person will ever be on Fox or CNN? I don't think so. They both mislead working people back into the establishment without this solid understanding of political physics and theory, you're screwed. You're going to follow on the, the left wing, Bernie Sanders, oh, he said something, or Robert Kennedy, scumbags. Or you're going to follow, you know, some right wing talk show host. They're not going to lead us to liberation. It's us. And that political physics, it's a nuclear science of change. Bottoms up. We have to organize to understand that there is people who talk a good game and then look at what they actually do, left and right. I'm sorry, Sean Hannity may say some good things, but I don't see the urgency in his voice to get something done. And it can only come when you weaponize yourself 
with the right knowledge. You need to be able to identify a rat. You know, Christ didn't go after the Romans, right? It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who screwed him up. His own, quote-unquote, people. And that's where we're at. So these four concepts I've built into a curriculum. People can go to bashiva.com, and it's an educational program. We need to train people in political theory. You need to have physics, and I've created that curriculum. People need to get educated. We need to get educated fast. And within half an hour, an hour, I can teach people. Two years of MIT control systems, I teach people those concepts. Then I apply it. Anyone can understand it. And then you say, oh, I got to build a bottoms-up movement. They have to get politically astute, and then they have to go locally and act, not sit there on social media. They have to act locally, defy locally, be, do civil obedience locally, but with knowledge on how to build a movement. And the Senate campaigns expanded to the movement for truth, freedom, and health, and they can find it on V as in Victor, A Shiva, VAShiva.com, so people can sign in, they can get access to a bunch of videos. If they want to take a course and become a truth, freedom, and health leader, I offer a full scholarship there. But we want people to make a commitment that they'll study, that they'll get certified, that they'll go do activities on the ground. So go to VA Shiva, Victory America Shiva, VAShiva.com. All right, everyone, have a good uh, afternoon. I'll be back uh, t this evening. We'll be talking about Neem. Neem is a very powerful uh, plant that has very uh, incredible powers for all sorts of immune issues. Um, very powerful, um, I think, for uh, you know eliminating fu uh, fungi, bacteria. We'll talk about that. Neem, N-E-E-M. So thank you. Be the light. Thank you. Be well. And by the way, everyone, go to bashiva.com. Um, tomorrow evening, I'll be doing a class I do every Monday. I look forward to seeing uh, everyone there. Be well. Thank you.